0: You are listening to The Heavenly Chi Podcast, episode 37. Today we're discussing the Picasso principle with our special guest, Zev Rosenberg.
1: Hey everybody, I'm Claire Pyers. And I'm Fiona Gitchum. And today we're talking with Zev Rosenberg. Hi Zev, welcome to the show.
2: Good afternoon, evening, or whatever, whatever time it is, wherever you are. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's great to have you with us today. Zev Rosenberg is recognized as one of the first generation of practitioners of traditional Chinese medicine in America. Zev was a Shiatsu therapist and macrobiotic counselor prior to opening his acupuncture and herbal medicine practice in 1983. Zev was one of the initiators of an acupuncture licensing law in Colorado, spearheading a drive as president of the Acupuncture Association of Colorado from 1984 to 1988. As well as being a Professor Chair Emeritus at the Pacific College of Oriental Medicine, where he taught for 23 years, he has lectured widely around the United States and has written many articles published in all of the professional English language journals of the Oriental medical profession. Presently, he is the California Director of the Institute of Classics in East Asian Medicine, Director of the Alembics Institute, an Advisory Board Member at the University of California in San Diego at the Integrative Health Center, and a Senior Researcher at the Xinglin Lin Institute, a research organization in classical Chinese medicine. Zev is also a Professor in the Doctorate Program in Classical Chinese Medicine at the Academy of Chinese Health Sciences in Oakland, California. You can find Zev's practice in San Diego. The Heavenly Chi podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment and professional development. Show notes and continuing professional development resources are found at www.heavenlychipodcast.com. You can add the Heavenly Chi podcast to your favorite RSS feed, iTunes or Stitcher. You can also follow us on Facebook. All links are in the show notes. We hope you enjoy today's episode and if you really enjoy our show, please rate
0: us on iTunes. So, welcome to the Heavenly Chi Podcast, Zev.
2: Thank you very much. It's wonderful to be here.
0: It's great to have you here, and we're discussing the Picasso Principle in Classical Chinese Medicine Diagnosis, which is a wonderful title I have to share with the listeners. That was a title that Zev came up with. So... Before we start, I'm wondering if you can elaborate for me on why Picasso? Are we talking about a, a particular stage in or phase in Picasso's art um, in relation to how you're going to unfold um, diagnostics for us?
2: If uh, It's definitely not his blue period. It's
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I would say, you know, his cubist work and what... Uh, He developed at this point, and his particular genius at this stage was multiple perspectives looking at the same phenomenon or object in what we call reality and uh, painters of that period, the Cubists and also to some degree the Impressionists were able to, were viewing the world as the mind sees it rather than how the eye necessarily sees it. So in Classical Chinese medicine diagnosis, this means that there are a number of different possible perspectives to look at your patient from, or what we can call clinical gaze. It doesn't have to be just one thing, and that's one reason there are so many different styles of practice. On one hand, I want to caution, it doesn't mean that anything goes, you can call a patient any pattern you want, or, you know, it's, it's not an excuse for being sloppy it's not an excuse for being over over oversimplifying the matter at hand at the same time it's also um, not an excuse for making throwing everything into in the kitchen sink and having too many diagnoses and try to treat all over the map there's a fine balance between simplicity and the inherent complexity of the human being but when you look at this complexity of the human being well, all of a sudden, you can look at it from different angles or different perspectives depending on where you stand. So it's really about perspective and all the influences that come in in that relationship between the practitioner and the patient.
0: Hmm. Cubism is the the phase that did come to mind when I was wondering about that. And it also made me think of how Um, In modern holistic thought, it's often referenced the idea of the broken mirror may contain much more of the image than uh, just as a separate part. And yet the whole image is really reflected in the whole broken mirror.
2: Or the idea of the fractal, where like the smallest piece of the fractal has the same pattern and shape as the entire major picture. So, yes. that's how we. So, Chinese. It also refers to the fact that Chinese medicine is also holographic. So, in other words, when we feel the pulse, when we look at the tongue, when we uh, focus on specific acupuncture points, holes, and later on in Chinese medicine, developed the various microsystems such as ear acupuncture, um, hand acupuncture, nose acupuncture, those types of things or the abdominal acupuncture system based on the turtle, the spiritual turtle, you're looking at holographic systems where a part represents the whole. So that's another aspect of it. And in the uh, Su Wen and Ling Shu, this is referred to as Zhang Xiang, which Nigel Wiseman translates as visceral manifestation. So the statement in the Su Wen is that what is going on in the inside of the person, the body and the mind, can be viewed from the outside. There are changes that happen on the pulse, in the complexion, in the abdominal conformation, in specific channel pathways, uh, the skin. You could see these changes reflecting what's going on in the inside. And then you work with those external signs and then determine what's going on the inside. So the course the ancient Chinese didn't have x-rays and uh, MRIs and modern equipment which in a sense on one hand allows you to see visibly what isn't there it measures quantitatively what's going on the Chinese diagnosis is more of a qualitative diagnosis we're looking for qualities and then we treat qualities because qualities are not fixed entities they are changing entities and Chinese philosophy and culture is all about transformation and change and following those transformation and changes and working with them.
0: In, in the term Zhang Xiang that you mentioned, is the character Xiang the same that means fragrance?
2: No, it's a different Xiang.
0: Okay. Well, that was working for me if it did, as if the, uh, yeah. the information it's, about the person was kind of wafting out of them in all these ways.
2: <laughs> so Xiang is the character for similar...
0: Okay.
2: I can even send it to you if you like. It's uh,
0: ah.
1: Thank you. So, we can and we can put it in the show notes. We can. Um, so that our listeners can have a look at the character as well. I'll
2: email it to you right now.
0: Okay. So we have here one of your uh, first notes that you've sent us about you know getting these diagnoses. Um, through the holographic details as being the essential role of the pulse. so what can you share with us today about that? There's so much to talk about when it comes to pulse.
2: Many years ago, um, I got the I had the honor of not studying just not only with Chinese medical practitioners but with Tibetan and Ayurvedic practitioners. When I was in acupuncture school, it was a school with three departments, the Department of Chinese Medicine, the Department of Ayurvedic Medicine, and the Department of uh, Body Therapies or massage therapy. And so we had classes with Dr. Vasant Lad, who now is the head of the Ayurvedic Institute many years later. And I remember something he said said that when you're feeling the pulse, you're holding the life of the patient in your hands. That's their life. It's the pulse of life. It's something moving, and it's truly holographic and that it reveals the entire condition of the person in front of you. And of course, we divide into three Tsun guan, chur, upper, middle, lower burner. We have three depths. And it's a grid in which one can view the overall condition of the patient. And according to the Chinese medical classic, specifically the suen and the nanjing, the classic of difficulties. It's the primary diagnostic tool we have. Ironically, in those early days, it was very hard to find Chinese practitioners who really emphasized the pulse, because modern TCM largely de-emphasized it, because it was hard to tie it into modern biomedical diagnosis. But soon after I graduated, I also took some seminars. Um, when I moved to Colorado to open in my practice with Dr. Yeshe Dundan, who was the physician to the Dalai Lama, And he didn't speak English, and he felt my pulses and told me exactly what was going on with my health just from feeling the pulses. And a physician came to UCSD, UC San Diego some years later, a Tibetan physician, and they did a little uh, double blind, quote unquote, study with him. They brought in 18 patients of, uh, they were supposed to be cancer patients, and just feeling the pulse not asking any questions, he was able to tell of 17 of the 18 people what type of cancer they had from the pulse. And on the 18th one he said, you don't have cancer. And he was correct on all of them. The doctors, I never saw anything like this in my life in terms of the reaction of the Western physicians who were there. So it's a very, the most powerful tool we have. My Policy is when I get a new patient, I don't let them tell me what's going on with them first. I feel the pulse, look at the tongue, look at them, do visual diagnosis, other forms of visceral diagnosis, you know, such as odor or sound of voice, and then I tell them what I'm picking up. And the value of that is twofold. Number one, you reframe the condition that the patient has. In other words, you're already bringing the person's condition and the patient themselves into the context in which you work. And that's very important. We're not trying to duplicate Western medicine. I know there are many practitioners who feel they should, but it's very hard to treat Western diseases as a separate thing from the person in Chinese medicine. That's a biomedicine strong point. But once you reframe it, and also once you feed back to the person through the pulse what's going on with them. And that's not just physiological, it could be emotional or even spiritual in the sense of the person's life direction and their ease of mind, so forth. You reflect it back to them, it builds patient confidence better than any practice building seminar one can hope to take. So that's the primary importance of the pulse from where I sit, and I started feeling pulses in the mid '70s when I was a shiatsu practitioner. Even before I went to school, I didn't diagnose from it, but I would tell everyone, "I said, let me feel your pulse. I'm just learning how to do it, but I need to feel the pulses in order to get them." So it's something that has to be cultivated on a daily basis.
0: You know, I can totally agree with that. And I worked for about five or six years after I graduated in a a real hippie town with a healing center where I not only did acupuncture, but I also did totally different sessions of shamanic healing where I would just put hands on, take the pulse. And I had to um, make sure the reception staff told people not to start talking to me when they walked mm-hmm. in, because I'd have to say, shh, 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 right, 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 right. <laughs> I'm so sorry, I want to let you talk, but I just actually want to feel everything first, and, you know, just the amount you could deliver, half an hour's worth of talking to someone just from taking the pulse, and I think that's really important, we've, in several episodes of the podcast, our guests have touched on, you know, the some of the challenges students have with pulse, or sometimes also the that a practitioner may not feel confident to head towards the pulse as a source of information. So I think it's just really important, I agree, that everyone just touches pulses and starts to speak to the person about what they feel, even just in the shen.
2: Well, in the education as it presently stands, um, you have a number of problems. The first is that most people teaching in our Chinese medicine schools in the West at least don't have enough pulse skills themselves to give it over, because it is a process teaching pulse of transmission. It's not just studying the texts, it's also you know, confirming, working with a teacher. You know, when you do acupuncture, seeing how pulses change as you do the treatment, you need all this type of confirmation. And there are many practitioners who just, you know, it's amazed me. This is for many years now. Saying, oh, the pulse isn't important. It's too subjective. In my opinion, it's a cop-out. Because people feel embarrassed about using these um, <laughs> primitive methods, you know? Like we're locked into this thing that it has to be a technological read in order for it to be modern enough as far as diagnostics.
1: I think it's really interesting um you know what you were saying before as well about you know the order in which we're feeling the pulses because a lot of us are I guess the way that we come out of school for for whatever reason is that we conduct the consultation first and the pulse and tongue comes at the end and you you kind of you already have developed you know if you if you've done you know, you've asked the 10,000 questions and you're already getting an idea in your mind of what the person's disharmonies might be. And you have expectations of what you might be going to feel on the pulse or what you might be going to see on the tongue. And then, you know, the person opens their mouth and sticks out their tongue. And then you put your fingers on their pulse and you're like, oh, wow, this is not what I was expecting. It can really kind of throw things out. Whereas I, I really like the idea of, you know, having the pulse first, going for the tongue first, and then looking for, okay, well, what's, you know, what's going on for the person asking you questions based on that.
2: Right. People want to be seen and heard, but they also need to, again, reframe what's going on because um, the environment in which you work is also important. The first thing I did when I graduated acupuncture school about now 35, six years ago, was burn my lab coat. <laughs> <laughs> I never wanted to work. I mean, I working in and out of hospitals, especially in my years in Denver, in a time when before the hospitals were overly corporate. I used to work with Western physicians. I helped, you know, deliver babies in hospitals and at home births. So I was in and out of things, but Never with any type of protocol or uniform or anything like that. Now, I really maintain strong independence despite my involvement with the Integrative Health Center over here. So uh, I think we need to have a separate identity. This idea of somehow merging with the regular medical profession, I think it's fine to work with the regular medical profession and, and even in those environments, but not lose our autonomy in terms of our medical philosophy, diagnostics, and how we follow up on that, otherwise we're just going to be second rate. We're not going to be first rate practitioners. That's my opinion, anyway. So, and you know, let's see. If, uh, if you know, you're you're in Boulder, right? Yes. And you know, uh, I, I you know about all the battles going on between the more uh, Taoist practitioners and the physical therapy-type practitioners and the dry needlers, I mean, you've got a free-for-all going on there. Yes. (laughs) And uh, it's really kind of difficult to see that happening, especially since, as you know, I helped get a license in law. But um, at the time, and to some degree now, Colorado was an anti-regulatory state, and they wanted to minimize the licensure, but I was hoping that they would... uh, include herbal medicine in the license, because that's one of the things that helps us stand out from just anybody doing acupuncture. A few thoughts on that, you know?
0: Oh, well, I'm actually not aware of that issue so much in this geographical location, but I'm definitely aware of it as an issue across acupuncture. Um, and perhaps as we see on the Facebook groups that really connect us between our countries, that I guess Sometimes you don't always know where people are from, but maybe a lot of that discussion is coming from America. Um, It's certainly an issue in Australia as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, what you see a lot of is a lot, again, I have no problem with people doing functional medicine or, or supplements and things like that, as long as they view it through a Chinese medical lens. Or if they're using a different medical systems lens, then they should be able to keep it separated rather than dominating the Chinese medical lens. Like recently on a group, uh, let me know if I'm digressing from the topic too much. I know we're talking about Pulse. Someone posted that according to functional medicine, if one has a certain type of humoral immunity problem and autoimmune disease, one should not use gansao, licorice, or huangqi, astragalus, and formulas because they will step up. the immune response. And it, it's totally, in my opinion, uh, I don't want to, I guess bogus is the right word because no studies have ever been done on Chinese herbal formulas. They only take single herbs and then put them in test tubes. They're not actually tested on actual patients. And to say that you should never use Gansau in an autoimmune patient or Huangqi is robbing our patients of therapeutic tools which may be essential to cure them, because when you combine them in a different way, and when you look through the Chinese medical lens, we see that there's no harm done at all. Or Dong for example. There are a lot of people who uh, falsely consider Dong to be, quote-unquote, estrogenic. There's no uh, phytoestrogens in Dong And it's just really a supposition, because at some places it's called the woman's ginseng. So you shouldn't use it in breast cancer patients or women who are on uh, aromatase inhibitors. And if you look in China at the hospital system where they have TCM oncological hospitals, there are the records of one uh, TCM oncologist who has given 85,000 herbal prescriptions to women with breast cancer. And out of those form is 45% of those women which is probably thirty-five to 40,000 formulas, have Dong in. You would think that if after writing tens of thousands of formulas, Dong is causing any problem for women with breast cancer, they would have noted it in an environment like that, right? So we don't have that clinical backup for some of these opinions that are scaring people off the use of herbal medicine.
1: And I think a lot of these opinions are coming from people who, you know, they're not, they're not herbalists or they're not coming from, you know, practitioners who have experience. They're coming from researchers in the laboratory or people who are outside of the world of Chinese medicine. and And it's, it's a really big problem because it can really throw practitioners who, you know, maybe don't have the confidence of, you know, of clinical experience. They don't have, you know, maybe they haven't been out for long enough or something has rattled their you know, their confidence somewhere along the way. And it doesn't take much for, you know, the seeds of doubt to be planted. And, you know, it can right. really grow and, and, um, can, you know, as you say, it, it prevents patients from getting the best possible outcomes. You know, I've heard people say they refuse to give dungwe to pregnant women. But, you know, <laughs> you, you look at formulas like dungwe shaya sun, like it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a great formula. And it, and it's, it's, it's got dungwe
2: sun. Yeah, It's been used for 1,800 years as a primary formula for pregnant women to mm-hmm. help them have an easier pregnancy. Exactly. They're not looking at the sources in our own medicine first, which means that they don't really believe in our own sources or haven't been exposed to them enough to have the strength to stand confidently on it. So this is something we need to rectify in education. So um, there's also the more... One investigates the classical medicine, which means one has to be studying texts such as the Nanjing, the Su Wen, and the Ling Shu, where a lot of the pulse material we use today comes from. The Shang Han Lun, which has its own pulse system, etc. One sees that um, it's not materialistic in the modern sense. It's not again looking for measurements. I mean, how much qi does a person have in their body? How many ounces or pounds, right? We don't measure qi, but qi is an essential phenomena of Chinese medicine. And we're reading the state of the qi. And when we're talking about shui or blood, it's different than the Western blood. It's qualitatively different. It's not exactly the same thing. And there are, there are different logical understandings of how this shui, this blood, is produced by the body and we have to use those as our essential principles, otherwise we're going to get tripped up and confused somehow, or just say, this is too frustrating to understand, I'm just going to use the biomedical diagnostics and then use acupuncture protocols to treat Western conditions. So this is a very important thing to understand. At the same time, it is possible to read specific diseases in the pulse, or at least suggest them, and also work together with Western medicine to help our patients. I'll give you a prime example of a case I had last year. This is a woman in her 50s <coughs> who came to see me. She had moved down from Los Angeles a year before to San Diego. And she said that since she moved here, she'd been very depressed and um, has no energy. And she knows it's not because she's in San Diego, because she doesn't feel any different when she goes back to LA to be with her friends. So she wanted me to read her pulses and see what was going on with her. And so I I felt her pulses, looked at her, and palpated her abdomen a little bit. And I said to her, on your left side, the left chair position, the third position, is like a ball of rubber bands. It's expanded, hard, and irregular. I said, there's something going on in your lower abdomen or in your kidney and you need to get it checked right away. So she did and they found out that she had a cancerous tumor on her kidney and that she had it removed just in time to save her life. Now that type of thing doesn't of course happen every day in the clinic but you also do have the ability to read on such irregularities in physiology as well filling the pulse. So how do we do that? So. The classics tell us that we first have to read what is jung, what is correct with the person. In other words, every person has their normal state and every person has their xie, their evil qi, which is their departure from this normal state. This can happen progressively over time, it could be constitutional, i.e. innate, but we have to somehow. That's where calculation comes in in Chinese medicine. So you, it's important to know constitutional type. We can use the five phases. Um, we can use channel diagnosis, like in Shang-Hen Lin, There's a Taiyang type. There's a Taiyin type, a Shaoyin type, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They tend to certain types of illnesses. We'll tend to find certain types of pulses, and then we can see where pulses become disordered. And that disorder tells us how long it's going to take to get a person better, what it is they're going to need, whether the tools of our own medicine, including dietetics, meditation, qigong yoga, things like that, or if it needs stronger medicine, if the illness is so acute and so dangerous that we have to use the tools of Western medicine. All this can be felt on the pulse. And it's a highly logical system. But one has to learn the system. So the first 22, 23 chapters of the Nanjing are basically a course in pulse diagnosis. And you could start with the first chapter, go through chapter 23, and it slowly unfolds the different ways to feel the pulse and the different things you look for, the speed, the depth. And for me, the most fascinating thing what be called timing in the pulse. Um, so in other words, the defense Qi and the construction Qi, the Wei Qi and the Ying Qi are essentially important in Chinese medicine and all disease processes are associated with this interface of the defense and construction Qi and the defense Qi moves outside the channels over the surface of the body, what provides the body with its warmth, its yang in nature, and the Ying Qi are the fluid or what uh, Manfred Porca calls destructive fluids of the body, including blood, lymph, sweat, uh, essences in the body. And the movement of the chi through the channels through the day follows a clock from the surface to the interior. And before you wake up, it should be in the kidneys, replenishing and nourishing the kidneys. And then it moves out from the kidneys at dawn and moves back into the channel system again to nourish the other five viscera. And we're going to talk about the five viscera a little bit in our next section. It's that important. So you're also seeing people's body clocks at work. Um, the frontiers of medicine today include something called chronobiology, what we call in Chinese medicine Wu Yang Liu qi, five movements and six qi. And there are um, nine chapters in the Suan just on this topic. Timing of illness, seasonal qi, the quality of specific years on the Chinese calendar, using combinations of the five phases and the channel system. It's really fantastic stuff. And uh, putting it into practice, again, puts you in a completely different mindset when you're viewing the patient. So we have a highly developed system with the necessary complexity to really have a complete system of medicine, not just a technique. So the problem, again, with modern TCM is taught at least in the Western textbooks, is that it's really in many ways oversimplified and doesn't give you all the tools to give a comprehensive diagnosis on your own. You just get a pattern, a Bianjung Lunger, you know, based on Zhang Fu. Okay, you have uh, kidney yin vacuity, with liver cheese stagnation, with lung yin vacuity. But how do you tie those together? Right, it's, it's not enough information to be coherent with the diagnosis. One time, I was—I uh, used to be a uh, clinic supervisor at the school where I was teaching many years back. And there was, you probably have them at the schools, if you guys are connected to schools. There are patients who just go for acupuncture every week. And they uh, see different supervisors and different students every week. And so this one person, uh, I was given their file, was like really thick. And for three years, they saw a different practitioner and a different supervisor every week. And every week, they had a different Zhang Fu diagnosis a different formula and different points. Mm -hmm. It was like, wow, how can you go from this to this to this to this to this? This is where things get a little bit too out of hand, a little too perspectivist, so to speak. So you really have to wonder how much do people really believe in the diagnosis that they're making and how watertight is it and how inclusive is it. You know, uh, I used to joke with the students, when I hear the term chief complaint, I reach for my gun. I was paraphrasing uh, Mao Zedong. That was one of his famous sayings. When I hear the word uh, uh, revolution, I reach for my gun. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, don't talk to me about your chief complaint. That's too reductionist. The chief complaint is only the foreground in a background where you have to take all of the relative symptoms in terms of your listening diagnosis. You can't leave anything out. You can certainly prioritize some things over others. And in an acute situation, if a person has like a, a han, a cold damage, or a feng, a wind strike, of course, you're going to uh, prioritize the acute condition that's in front of you. But um, one should never ignore the background information. Or as the homeopaths like to say, we always need to look at how people get sick, not only what they have. But everyone has their own way of getting ill. And once we know how people get sick, we will know how to get them better. Catch my
0: drift? Absolutely. I think, you know, there's so much, um, even when we see case discussions on the acupuncture groups and whatnot, where people are asking, what do I do? And so rarely do they actually divulge the story that that the person carries with them that was their era in which they created this issue or their illness. And, And that's what we need to know to really be able to give good advice.
2: It also it also depends on what type of clinic you're working. And if you're one of those places where you're seeing, you know, 20, 30, 40 people an hour, it's harder to do. Which is one reason I don't do that. Or if you're doing just orthopedics and you're focusing on musculoskeletal disorders, that's of course understandable as well. But I'm I'm talking you know Chinese internal medicine. But most sure. practitioners are not specialized and have all kinds of people walking in their doors. So. That's for the, I'm referring to this type of practice
1: yeah, you know i we have students that come into into my clinic that do um, you know they do clinical observation and and so forth, and you know a lot of them have a real they just even in their final year of study still have a lot of trouble feeling confident that they 're getting a good diagnosis, you know that they 've got a patient in front of them or even a case study on a piece of paper and and that's something that, um, you know, I find that's one of the things that I work a lot with, with the students who come in. It's like, well, you've got to get your diagnosis right, because then, you know, the treatment kind of follows from that, you know, if you oh, actually yes. know what you're doing, you know, and I think even at school, we had, I think, 70% of the marks for, for any type of case study were attributed to the diagnosis, because if you get the diagnosis wrong, then, you know, then it's <laughs> it'll you know you could come up with the greatest acupuncture treatment and herbal formula treatment that you like to match that diagnosis but if it's not right then the person's not going to necessarily improve and and it was something that i observed when i was at school as well you know you'd you'd see people you'd see patients who'd been seen by other um you know by other students and i see it sometimes in clinic you know you get um patients who've been at other practitioners and and, you you know, you're finding out about the herbal formulas they've been prescribed and you're like, wow, that is just, it doesn't even fit what this person has going on for them. You know, that there's assumptions made about, oh, this person has acne. Okay, that's dampede. I'm going to give them this formula. And, you know, and it could be that they've got, you know, they've got internal cold and yang deficiency. And, right. Yeah, and making assumptions is kind of, yeah. Well,
2: you have to use common sense and also the logical system that we have. Otherwise, you end up doing things like taking long don tang, which is a very cold, bitter formula for any type of inflammation on the body or any type of skin condition, whether the patient is hot or cold. And of course, you're also going to get diarrhea, loss of appetite, a feeling of chills. You may actually lessen the symptoms, but you worsen the patient. So that's something we definitely don't want to happen. I think the source of this problem is, look, I know students are already overpaying for their education. The price of the Chinese medical education is exorbitant. But some type of mentoring really is necessary to stay, at least stay in touch with a senior practitioner in one's area and just check in with them and you know sit in and see how they do pulses. Um, we need more of that because once out of the schools, if people don't have that confidence, I mean, you'll get some of it by seeing your patients get better, but you still need to ground yourself in something. The two things you need are a continuing relationship with senior practitioners, number one, and number two, you need to keep studying. And you need to keep studying the stuff that you didn't get in the schools mostly, which are the classical texts, which are now in good translations. Medicine's also a culture. It's not just a technique. It's not just a... uh, a praxis. It's, there's a whole mindset. It's how you think. You know, medicine is a way of viewing the world. It's based in Chinese philosophy. Western medicine is a way of viewing the world. It's based on, to a large degree, Newtonian physics view of the world. I mean, I'm really generalizing there, but uh, we are already living in the West, growing up in the West, immersed in a Western point of view. And in terms of the medicine itself, you could just Google any Western medical condition and find a ton of material on it. But if you don't know Chinese language, you can't access all the material that's in Chinese. Like one of those studies I just mentioned on using Donggui in breast cancer treatment in mainland Chinese hospitals. You don't even know it's there. And if you don't uh, you study you know, medical Chinese language, at least basic medical Chinese, and if you don't study the classical texts, um, you're just not going to get it, because you, the Chinese language itself has a built-in logic in the characters. you know, Just like the character for qi, which is like a steaming pot of rice, so to speak, and the steam coming up and dispersing as one understanding of qi. Just understanding, just studying qi alone will get you a lot of benefit. It doesn't have to be an all or nothing thing. Just beginning that study. Just immersing oneself little by little in it pays huge dividends that pay back a hundred, a 1, thousandfold when you practice. So in other words, and no, no offense to Giovanni, he's a friend of mine, but you know, put down the Giovanni books and start opening up some of the classical books. You've got enough, you know, learned enough of that in school. Now it's time to go to the real stuff behind it, the source for those books, for those textbooks textbooks are fine, I mean, we need textbooks in the schools, but we have to go beyond them and learn the operating system of Chinese medicine, which is not taught in the schools. We don't learn the operating system. We're not taught really how yin and yang works. We're not really taught how five phases works, except unless you're in a five-phase school. You don't really learn what defense qi is, construction qi, ying wei. We don't learn about ministerial fire and sovereign fire in the heart. We don't learn the theories of Li Dongyuan and Zhu Danqi, which help us understand how autoimmune disease develops. We need these theories to practice the complicated uh, patients that we see now. Otherwise there's only one textbook on autoimmune disease in English as that I know of at the present time from mainland China and there's another one that's harder to find on lupus. And both of them are really biomedically influenced. And they both use huge formulas with a lot of cold, bitter ingredients that Americans would be, have, find it very difficult to digest. In fact, there are even many of these formulas very toxic and harmful to the body. And they, they're based on a biomedical understanding of the body and looking at all autoimmune diseases being when bing as a warm disease. And it's just mm-hmm. not true. And I, I've never seen it, it presented in that way. So if you don't even have the material, there's very few people teaching how to treat autoimmune disease in the West now. And I'm not trying to wave my own banner, because I don't want to overdo teaching the subject. But autoimmune disease is one of the specialties in what I teach. So well, we need more people teaching it. We need more people learning it and passing it on. Otherwise, we're going to miss a huge opportunity to influence healthcare in the West.
1: Well, yeah, because autoimmune diseases are becoming, you know, they're becoming so common. There's so many, so many patients mm-hmm. who have Hashimoto's disease and lupus right. and, um, you know, Crohn's disease. It's like it's it's something that factors into so many of your patients' presentations, regardless of what type of clinic you know even if you're even if you're doing a fertility practice or even if it's a musculoskeletal practice that you have like you're going to have patients with autoimmune conditions it's going to affect the type of you know treatment that you're going to give their sore back or their sore knee or their sore neck
2: oh yeah and you know one symptom leads to another you start to find what's underneath and then there's more going on. And sometimes those underlying conditions reinforce the musculoskeletal issues as well. Definitely. Mm. Um, there's a great uh, teacher practitioner who's based now in Beijing. She's moving back to Canada next year. You may want to interview her. her. name is Suzanne Robidu. And she teaches a system of Jing Fang of Shang Lin. Jingwei-based herbal medicine, and a system of acupuncture called Yuanqi acupuncture. And when I met her a few years ago, I was recovering for a knee injury, and it was 90 to 95% better at the time. So the rest of the cure is to strengthen your heart Qi and work on your Shaoyan channel. And you know what? She was right. Because when I started paying attention to that more and working on that, it, the other 5% got better. It was a quite amazing that last bit holding me back from feeling pain in the knee and full function was based on Shao Yin and heart. So, it was, you know, it's quite amazing to take things a little bit further than just the surface, you know, going beneath the surface.
0: Mm, I mean, I think we're definitely taught to focus on the root and not the branch, but depending on even your, your own life experience and... Um, your own experience with illness and healing yourself, um, your idea of what is the root it can also be quite a deep rabbit hole that just continues and continues to deepen. Well, when I have, basically,
2: I, I'll, I'll share my own story because it's part of medicine and our own stories are very important, you know, healing the healer, so to speak. So i mm. never be up to this point my, my youngest daughter got married a few years ago, two and a half years ago, and I was exhausted leading up to the wedding, as parents generally are, arranging everything and meeting all these people. And my dear wife put uh, two of my colleague's students to watch me to make sure I didn't get too carried away at the wedding, so to speak. And I don't drink or anything, but I like <laughs> to dance, right? So uh, <laughs> I was exhausted, and after the uh, wedding canopy, what we call the chuppah in Hebrew, I started, you know, there were all these young people in from New York in their early 20s, and they're like strong built guys, and they're going, Zev, 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 and I'm jumping up and down and flying, you know, dancing, doing like Grateful Dead hippie dancing kind of thing. And all of a sudden I felt my knee give way, and, Roar, you know, something pulled out my knee, and I tore both meniscus and my ACL. So uh, the first thing I had to do with this injury was my whole body a change? not just the knee. It threw my whole balance off, emotionally, psychologically, and physically. I read one of Elizabeth Rochette de Lavalle's books on the wujur of the five minds, the five spirits of the body. And I had to re-inhabit my body and bring it back into, you could say, like a, I don't know if etheric is a good word or not, but let's say an image of what a healthy functioning body would be. That's the first thing I had to do was mindfulness, look at the particular channels that were affected, start working on that both emotionally psychologically and with acupuncture. Then my wife gave me special yoga poses to do. I had the only surgery in my life, microsurgery, to repair the meniscus. I did not repair the ACL, And then started physical therapy, which is a much more physical method, of course, and over, it took some time, but I got myself back to almost full function. But it was an inner-outer process. It wasn't just, okay, do what you got to do to the knee, like on the machine. Even something like that type of injury has tremendous emotional, psychological, and spiritual effects and has to be dealt with on that level as well if you really want a complete cure. So, mm. Even Thanks. as you point out, with musculoskeletal illnesses, that's the case.
0: Yeah, well, so many symptoms, if we're to talk about the the problems just on the symptom layer, I mean, they're all usually forms of inflammation, and inflammation is something that in our English-speaking culture we identify as belonging to the physical, to the body, but I don't think you can have inflammation without having something inflamed in the spirit, soul, mind, heart, emotions. And they all have, you know, every physical representation of this ha- or manifestation of this has its story that the heart understands.
2: And of course the heart is the source of fire, the sovereign fire in the
0: mm, body. And
2: right. the kidney stores the ministerial fire. So what happens? is that one of the biggest mistakes practitioners make in our field, and I put in almost every lecture I do, inflammation is not necessarily evil heat. In fact, most of the time, inflammation is the body trying to overcome cold. It puts it inside out. Just recently, studies are now showing in the West that Icing all injuries is not necessarily a good idea. It can actually make them worse and slow down healing. The body's vital heat, even in such extreme conditions as what we call rheumatoid arthritis or bijung, impediment in Chinese, um, that evil heat is coming from the body's ministerial fire trying to expel cold. And if we try to put out that fire, we're actually putting out the body's ability to heal itself which is, of course, what anti-inflammatory steroids, et cetera, et cetera, are doing. They're simply putting out the fire. They're not really changing the inside of the person. And the person will find themselves getting colder and colder if they keep doing that. So it's a major issue. It's one of the things I keep emphasizing in our profession. Don't get lost in this clear heat, clear heat, clear heat, clear heat, because you're going to lose the vital heat of the patient. And the Ling Shu tells us that heat is life and cold is death. The first thing that (laughs) happens when a person dies is that you become as cold as a stone, you turn blue.
1: (laughs) And we, and we all have patients, you know, from time to time and they literally are blue. They're so cold that they're blue. Their tongue is just lacking any, any signs of warmth whatsoever and, uh, yeah, it's, you know, they're in really big trouble. If you can't look after someone's yang qi, then it's it's very difficult to get someone well.
2: Yeah, there's an overemphasis on yin deficiency now, another place where you see this as a real uh, clinical mistake, one that I made myself in my earlier days. Now, you see women who are going through menopause or what's called jing duan in Chinese Cessation of menses is one of the names. It's not necessarily seen as a disease state, but it's described in the uh, Su Wen. By the way, if I could recommend chapters of the Su Wen to start with, get the Unchul translation, Paul Unchul translation of the Huangqi, Huangdi Neijing Su Wen. It's in two volumes, and read immediately the first six chapters which contains the essence of what I like to call an ecological environmental medicine. It teaches you first, what is health? You have to have a definition of what is health before you can define what is disease. Once you understand what health is, and according to the science, defined as living with the seasons, literally going with the flow, or what we call shun, to flow, sickness is in his knee, or counterflow, going the opposite way of the way things should flow. um, And living a lifestyle that supports health, which is called yang sheng, nourishing life. Medicine begins with nourishing and preserving health. If that health is violated, either by the actions of the person, or if it's violated by famine, war, loss, anxiety unseasonable weather etc cetera, etc cetera, then there are adjustments that need to be made and that's how we respond clinically speaking but in a case like um, menopause which again men are said to change in eight-year cycles women in seven-year cycles so at seven times six years more or less the cycle begins to become erratic and seven times 749 the average women of that era their menses would end. So if you look at the symptoms of things like hot flashes, night sweats, emotional disquietude uh, called fan in Chinese, people see that as heat, because you know, heat, sweating, flushing up. But a very simple test will show you something different. The first is just feel the abdomen, you don't even have to press in. The abdomen is usually cold. The person's mingmen fire, ministerial fire that's rooted between the kidneys around the navel floats up to harass the upper burner. So what do you have to do? You have to root that fire back into the lower burner. Um, So this escaping heat, the second thing is if you look at the tongue, it may have a red tip, but the body is often pale and swollen. The pulse also tends to be thin. And it may be flooding towards the top a little bit, but it's going to be weak in the chur position, the depth. And if you just give yin herbs or heat-clearing herbs, you're going to be very disappointed with the result. Because I would say 9 out of 10 cases of menopause are yang vacuity cold, and only 1 out of 10 are yin vacuity heat, especially in America. Maybe in places like Mongolia, places where the people have hardier constitutions and produce more biological heat through activity this might be possible but it's uh, almost backwards to what we should be doing we should be warming the belly doing moxa taking warm herbs such as ginger futsa uh, rogue way, and the fire goes down or at the very least a formula like shenshi one the kidney chi pill which also has futsa uh, and rogue in it Not just giving yin. Do you know what the source of this uh, yin-vacuity mentality comes from? Western medicine. Chinese physicians, um, Volker Schei did a very in-depth study on this. It's available for free. on the. you could just Google it. On menopause, he did some studies. And first of all, the the Japanese don't look at it as being kidney yin-vacuity. That's number one. And traditionally, it would not be seen as a kidney invacuity pattern. but physicians in the 50s and 60s, TCM physicians, who were working more integrative circles, saw that women in the West, in those days, nearly every woman who was menopausal was recommended to go on estrogen. So what they did is, how will we classify estrogen in terms of Chinese medicine? It's yin in nature, it's heavy, it's cold. It nourishes the jing, the yin aspect of it. But the dirty little secret of that is that there's, yin is useless unless you mobilize it with yang. That's why the kidney qi pill, the shenshi one, also has the yang herbs, the aconite and the cinnamon bark, because yin alone just sits. It is stasis. When you warm yin, then it moves, and then it will metabolize. So, that's where this idea of kidney indeficiency, kidney invacuity, and giving a formula like uh, Jirabai Dihuanguan, Liu Wei Dihuanguan came in, was actually through Western medical thinking, not through Chinese medical thinking. So, in a sense, go ahead, I'm
0: sorry.
1: I was going to say, yeah, I feel, uh, I find it really interesting because, you know, I mean, that's still happening in, you know, in conventional medicine that women who hit menopause are given oestrogen. But from a functional medicine point of view, a lot of the integrative medical doctors are actually prescribing progesterone for menopausal women, which
2: which is warmer, yeah, yeah. It's warmer than oestrogen, which is interesting.
1: It fits. It fits more with the approach that we tend to take. I mean, the the women that I see here in Melbourne, you know, a lot of them have, um, a lot of them have blood deficiency and or yang deficiency as their, underlying, as their underlying presentation. You know, I think it, the redness that I see in people's tongues, I think, comes from a lot of self-medicating with coffee. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but, you're um,
2: taking that ministerial fire up to the brain. Yeah. You're, take, you're taking it out of the kidneys and flushing up. You're not adding anything to the body when you drink coffee. You're just freeing up Jing to be used. Hmm. So.
0: Mm, you're overspending your um, savings, your exactly. <laughs> emergency money.
2: <laughs> exactly <laughs> it's like what
0: you're doing. I, I tell people it's that fifty dollars that they've hidden somewhere for an emergency that they're spending.
2: You can see where these missing pieces of ministerial fire, sovereign fire theory, uh, chi transformation theory. Um, hmm. I'm getting a request. A Bluetooth device. Hmm. Okay, never mind. Sorry, I'll go ahead.
0: Somewhere That's okay. Like I some, don't, someone's trying it, to butt
2: into the session it looked like here, so I oh. to that. <laughs> okay.
0: it's, it's because you're saying everything that we've been longing to hear about the yang and the yin and the menopause. Mm-hmm. You know, I really appreciate that you could fill in as well the background details of it, how it came to be, you know, the the catchphrase that menopause is in deficiency because that's what all of the teachers taught me in the um, first half of the 2000 decade. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I've figured that out during my practice in this time and working with people who've, same with Claire, taught us how to rescue the yang and how important it is and that cold in the belly all the time. It's pretty much, you know, it's so many cases. and Oh, yeah.
2: Um, well, I'm there's really a... When you study the history of modern Chinese medicine, there's a very good, couple of very good books. The one of the best ones is called "Neither Horse nor Donkey," and it's done by uh, a Chinese uh, medical anthropologist, Sean Lay, his name is, and he points out that what that China, TCM, what we call TCM, is already integrated medicine. It was designed to complement Western medicine and make Western medicine, biomedicine, the primary form of diagnosis, and then break Western diseases into zongfu patterns. And that's why it doesn't really go past that, and that's why it seems to be based in many ways on Western medical thinking. But what many Western practitioners are figuring out is that it really doesn't go far enough, and that is explaining a lot of the new interest in functional medicine, because people want to have more depth, they want to have more knowledge, But they have not been taught that there is that depth of knowledge in the Chinese tradition. So that's one of the reasons for this present state of affairs that we're in right now, is that we already have a watered-down Chinese medicine, at least the version that's being promulgated in the West. But the good news is that there's already a good percentage of teachers, usually outside of the schools, although there are some schools that do have programs like this, and teachers that are teaching right out of the uh, Nanjing, the Nanjing traditional methods, Japanese acupuncture, Shanghanlun-based herbal medicine. So there's more of this coming in now. So mm-hmm. hopefully this trend will continue, and it will clear up some of the mistakes that have been made.
0: Yeah. I think that takes us to your next um point within the Picasso principle of diagnosis which is the sequential diagnosis the six stages of cold damage the material in the Shanghan Lun and Suwen, um and uh, I don't know if you've finished discussing autoimmune disease but yeah. definitely okay. you know the role of cold damage in chronic
2: Yeah. So we're going to I'm going to I'm going to tie it together in this section now. Um there are basically two types of diagnosis in, in classical Chinese medicine. The first one you could say is synchronous or Gan Ying, which means that you're harmonizing with the season, the time of day, the particular qi of the year, um, these factors. Whereas sequential diagnosis is tracing an actual condition in a point in time so you can move backwards and forwards on this particular um, grid so you, every illness has an origin point sometimes you can't read that it's called bing yin disease origin and then you have a prognosis or zheng ho which is how you're going to see the illness develop if it isn't you know treated so what zhang jing Put together in the Shanghan Lun and the Jingyue Yao was a six-channel-based system based on Suwen 31, Suwen Chapter 31, on how illness progresses from an exterior state into the interior. It is easiest to get rid of an illness in its early stages. We all know that. So, educating our patients to know when they first get a chill, or when their throat is scratchy, or when their nose starts to run or when they have difficult urination, or their bowel movement changes, or their skin starts to itch, all of these more quote-unquote superficial symptoms, if you check them in early stage, these are all aspects of what we call taiyang disease in the Shang Han Lun. This is the most exterior stage of illness. And with simple formulas, usually based on Tang, cinnamon twig decoction, or simple acupuncture moxibustion, which is described in the Shang Han Lun itself, you can avert a long-term disease process. I have an old friend who's a homeopath, and he used to say that uh, you get sick when you're not paying attention. I think that's really true. It's like if a person, for example, is out partying, drinking, stays up all night, and they're so busy enjoying the high and the people and the music, and then they wake up the next morning and they have an ear, nose, and throat infection, They weren't paying attention. Maybe they were in a freezing warehouse somewhere, you know, and they caught a severe chill, but they had drank so much alcohol that they felt nice and warm. But their pores were open and this cold invaded down into their throat and infected them. So not paying attention is often a cause of that. But sometimes we suppress these conditions. You could do it with vitamin C in large doses. You can do it with antibiotics. You can do it with contact pills. You suppress a disease process in its earlier stages, and the symptoms go away, but you've actually pushed the disease evil into a deeper stage. So Zhang Zhongjing postulated that there's a normal progression of illness. So on the first day, you may feel a little chill, a little runny nose, stiff neck and shoulders. but if you don't treat it right away, within a few days, your throat starts to get sore, heat effusion, your temperature goes up, your pulse becomes bounding, you start sweating profusely, you get constipated, and you start to feel pretty sick. Then if it's not resolved there, you start to get an alternating condition. One day you feel better, then the next day you feel worse, or at different times of day. And if it doesn't resolve there, it goes into what we call the three yin stages of disease. The three yin stages of disease means it's in your tissues and in your internal organs. The source was as simple as a possible invasion of cold or wind. But the result was it went into your joints, it went into your flesh, it went into your blood vessels, it went into your bones. And that's the next level of defense in Chinese medicine. But if it doesn't stop there, it goes into your vital organs, the five yin viscera, which are considered to be the treasures in Chinese medicine: the liver, spleen, heart, kidney, lung. And if the illness goes in there, it's already part of your body, and your body may put up, i.e., inflammation, heat. But that inflammation and heat doesn't do anything to get rid of the diseases. It only damages the viscera even more. So, there's a clear language for how people get chronically ill on the symptoms that manifest where it is, what the treatment strategies are, and how to try to reverse this course of disease, and very sophisticated formulas. So once we get over the conceit that everything modern is superior to everything that came in the past, and that our medical ancestors had tremendous wisdom which is why these books are still being studied today. The first thing is we have to get over this conceit that everything new is great. There's nothing wrong with anything new. I'm very interested in systems biology, in the latest research in autoimmune diseases and and cells and fluids and humors. All that's very interesting, but none of that tells me how to treat my patients. All it does, it gives me more data and information to work with to get... Another perspective that's also part of the Picasso principle, we can use the biomedical material as a perspective on the patient that we're seeing. But that information cannot ever be the basis of our treatment because acupuncture doesn't work that way, moxibustin doesn't work that way, herbal medicine doesn't work that way. We can't look at herbal medicine pharmacologically. We have to look at it traditionally if we're practicing an integral system. Otherwise, Chinese medicine is not an integral system. A handbag of techniques. Okay, that was kind of long winded.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Take it from there. (laughs) That's such great points you're making. I was just thinking while you were talking about, you know, even how when people get the first sign of a symptom of an external pathogenic attack like a cold or a flu, they'll take something that suppresses it, you know, and I'd love to see a research project on a large scale over a whole lifetime of comparing, you know, a group of people who regularly take these kind of suppressing medicines as Mm -hmm. soon as they get their symptom, and how they age, what kinds of diseases they get, and around about what ages they get them, and compare that with a group of people who take Chinese herbal medicine at the first sign of their external pathogen. And Mm -hmm. I think we would get so much out of it that would start to turn that dynamic on its head that, you know, what is new and scientific and modern certainly must have a superior intelligence about it.
2: Oh yes, and also you can also do the same thing with Chinese medicine. In my earlier example, if you see some type of inflammatory process and you give a formula like long Dan tongue, which in its right place is a fantastic formula, but as the text itself tells you, you need to have a rapid, flooding, slippery pulse in all positions. You need to have a bright red tongue with a greasy yellow coating. You need to have a true repletion heat or a damp heat condition to use the formula Long Dan Jie Gan Tan. If you just apply that, oh, rheumatoid arthritis, you have inflamed joints here. I'm giving you Long Dan Jie Gan Tan, You are also producing suppression, mm. and you're damaging the correct chi, and you're damaging specifically the spleen chi. If a person gets diarrhea, loses stool, loses their appetite, this is not a good result. You're actually undermining the patient's yin viscera by doing that. Mm. Again, that challenge, you want to use warming formulas. There is a school of thought in China called the Pai, the fire spirit school, where they use large amounts of uh, dry ginger, aconite, and cinnamon, and other hot herbs, it's a Xin to treat autoimmune diseases by kindling the ministerial fire. Now this has to be done very carefully. Otherwise, you can get you know, things like nose bleeding, things like... One has to be very careful. I don't recommend it or in the doses that they use in mainland China, quite frankly, at this point. Our patients are a little bit more delicate here. But the idea that you can use very hot herbs to treat autoimmune diseases challenges this mode of thinking again.
1: It, that reminds me of a um, listening to... Who was it? I think it was Gunter Nieb speaking at a conference one time about the, you know, about the fire school approach, and he he was giving examples of case studies. Where, oh, he has a book. Yeah. Yeah. I read his
2: article
1: on it. Yeah. yeah. Very good and, article. Yeah. And you know, he was recounting these, um, you know, these stories of slowly increasing the dose of futsa with his patients, and you know, in some cases he was giving up to five hundred grams of futsa. Sure. <laughs> just oh, sitting there going, oh, my goodness. And, you know, that he would kind of dose it until the person started getting slightly tingly in the lips and then kind of back off a little bit. And, and I mean, here in Australia it's a scheduled herb. It's a restricted herb. We're not allowed to right. use it. But, um, yeah, yeah, I just remember just being entirely fascinated that, you know, giving, routinely giving more than 60 grams in a dose was just So foreign to me, but yeah, you know, But and of course there's other herbs that help to, you know, return the the ministerial fire, um, you know, like rogue way and so forth. And they're such great, such great herbs for these patients. I
2: tend to have a more gradual, gentle approach. And also, as you know, many of our patients in the West are already taking very strong toxic medicines Mm. and you can't just stop them. I have a young woman now she's only like 22 23 with rheumatoid arthritis and uh, she's on prednisone and an immunosuppressive drug and she has skin rashes and joint pain and so forth you have to work very delicately with these patients because you know they're on different realms of medicine so uh, sometimes you have to apply what is realistic in that in the time period you're working so um, prednisone and steroids in general are a very they're very young drugs very hot they speed up the pulse they also liberate Jing from the kidney essence and they sometimes can bring your vital fire out to the skin causing skin eruptions it can cause accumulation of damp you know there's a whole syndrome called Cushing syndrome based on overuse of steroidal drugs but when you stop your kidney young gets very weak the body gets very cold so these things have to be handled very carefully so uh i think gunter probably is working with patients who weren't so drugged up
1: quite possibly <laughs> quite possibly yeah you know i think you Again, know it's a really great point about you know having an understanding of what these drugs are doing because a lot of patients are on medications, you know, they're taking statins, they're taking steroids, they're taking, you know, our patients are taking all kinds of drugs and, you know, like having an understanding of what the energetics of those medicines are as well and how we then take that into account when we're prescribing, you know, our whole oh, yeah. medicine and our acupuncture treatments.
2: It's really important. Very important. But I'm sure your practices like my own. You're seeing a lot of exhausted patients, and the uh, the more hipster the part of town you work in, the more depleted the patients are. One of my uh, colleagues and students works in our hipster neighborhood here, and Arnold Versalis, who has been to Australia many times, was here doing a uh, a clinic, and I was kind of working with him, feeling pulses as well, and man, these people were even more depleted than my own patients, and they had, like, list of symptoms. You could have written a Dostoevsky novel out of it. I mean, it's just... <laughs> you're seeing just incredible breakdown of human health, and it's scary to see that. You know, it's very scary to see that. And we're seeing... I and mean, this is congruent with the environmental degradation that's going on around us at all times, and the continuing uh, spring of pesticides. I mean... Right now there's a huge thing going on in America with a pesticide known as Roundup as they call it around here. Every gardener uses it. Every golf course has it. It's in the water supply. It's in the soil. Traces are showing up in mother's milk. And it's known California lists it as a cancer-causing chemical. And yet it's still being used everywhere by you know, Monsanto company and just having these substances in the environment is contributing to breakdown of human health. It's We're in a very scary situation. You know, we have your internal environment, we have the exterior environment. And the Nanjing says we have to heal the diseases of society as well as of humanity. And the, the disease of over-chemicalizing the food, the soil, the air, and the water is one of our biggest issues. This is what the uh, the Standing Rock demonstrations were largely about. What we will Native Americans have if you take our water? What will we have left? Water is life. Oil is not life. Water is life. Right? Hmm. So on a little yeah. bit more of a socio-economic political level, it's happening around us on that level as well. It's There's so no surprise, imp- you
0: know? so important. And you know, even in Australia, Roundup is considered okay to use for an organic, wow. registered organic farm. So well, but,
2: do, look at the reefs, what's happening the, with the uh, Great Barrier Reef there, that's a sign of the sickness of the earth. That's like the bones uh-huh. of the earth in a way, and the bones of the earth are dying. Yeah. I mean, so it's all tied up with that. That's why I think, when someone asks me for an argument for using classical Chinese medicine, the main one I use is that it's an ecological environmental medicine. It doesn't add to the pollution of the world. It teaches us how to live in harmony with that world, since first is yang sheng, nourishing of life. How can we nourish ourselves if our soil is sick? Mm-hmm. Now, Rudolf Steiner, the famous uh, German philosopher, taught a method of agriculture called biodynamics, where the whole farm was an ecosystem that everything you took you had to give back to the soil, give back to the animals and the plants, and nurture an interdependent environment, not just a factory that produces calories for people to consume, whether they be animals or vegetables. All right? We yeah. need to change our mode of thinking completely.
0: I really feel that the, you know, to have a future longevity of healing for the planet and, and human beings and our whole relationship, we need a really good network between Chinese medicine practitioners and permaculture or biodynamic oh. farmers and to work, you know, together. I always think that's such the ultimate combination because even as herbalists, we're relying on farmers, you know, and we yes. need to have that connection as, as um, people who give nutritional advice to understand what's, the relevance and what's the depth of relevance in the health of the soil?
2: Well, we're having an herbal conference in New York in March from the Shenan Herbal Society and I'm speaking on it, Sharon Weisenbaum is speaking on it. Uh, Eric Brand, who has been one of our great sources for finding clean Chinese herbs in China, he's been all over the country, he knows the business like no one else I know from the West. And also, herb growers from uh, New York and other states were starting to grow Chinese herbs in America organically. So that's a very important trend in the movement as well. Because uh, you know native practitioners throughout the history of Chinese medicine had their hands dirty. They were working with the soil, working with the plants, making their own herb medicines. No, it, Chinese medicine has become very urbanized to a large degree, especially in mainland China today. But you look at Tibetan medicine and you see that it's still very much connected to its rural roots and preparing, preparing medicines at certain times in the month according to lunar and solar cycles, different seasons when you harvest the plants, even to the point of blessings you say on those plants. It's, it's alchemical. It's fantastic because Herbal medicine is also alchemical, and I define alchemy which is why I call my teaching institute alembic. Alembic is a closed vessel allowing for transformations and changes to happen, and the human body is an alembic, an herbal formula is an alembic, and these processes that are discussed in alchemy reflect what's going on inside the vessel of the human being and in the vessel of nature itself. So you have all this incredible profound areas of study and involvement in the field that they don't teach in the schools much anymore. It's too bad. We should be teaching pharmacists to run pharma- to herbal pharmacies. We should be teaching translators to translate texts. We should be teaching people to do research in those texts. We should be teaching people how to grow the herbs and farm the herbs. We should be teaching people how to make you know acupuncture needles and devices and there's so many levels of involvement we're we're like a captive profession in so many ways. We have to open up our minds, open up our view of life and make change, not just say, oh we want to be like everybody else in the Western medical world. I don't envy people who work in the Western medical system. One of the reasons for the whole dry needling phenomena is that ph- uh, physical therapists are on a low end of the totem pole getting paid by insurance. You know, I know, In California, you're not allowed to do dry needling. And I have some good friends who are physical therapists. And they're not getting paid enough. They're looking for other modalities. They can bill insurance. They can make more money. I mean, it's that crass. What else can we do? So if you're part of that system, we're even lower on the totem pole. We'll get paid even less by insurances, and we're going to be forced to conform to biomedical descriptions of what we're treating, who your patients are, how long you treat them for, and the very way that your patients see you as a uh, technician in a medical marketplace. Okay. I'm buying with my insurance policy an acupuncturist to treat my sore back. Okay, we'll find you an acupuncturist to treat your sore back. We'll pay for five treatments. Okay, let's see who's in our network. Over here in Melbourne, we've got so-and-so in this part of town. They charge so much a treatment. There's another person in another part of town. They charge this amount. Okay, you want the cheaper one here. We'll call. Well, how do you connect with this one? This is how. This is what I call the medical marketplace, where you're just a provider of a service, and it loses completely the practitioner-patient relationship that's based on <coughs> mutual respect, trust, and interaction. So that's a whole other part of the thing that we're looking at here.
1: Yeah, you know, and I think. Um... I mean, the system in America is definitely way more complex than it is in Australia. People just...
2: I'm sure can, it is, yeah.
1: Yeah, pe- people can just see whoever whoever they like and the insurance will, you know, give them almost nothing, but they get almost nothing regardless of who they see. <laughs> you don't have to be in, <laughs> in, in network. You, you know, you get $17 towards your consultation. Um, but, but, yeah, you know, I think, you know, as far as all of the you know the dry needling stuff goes like it's really in a lot of ways you know I know a few physiotherapists which I think is similar to a a, a PT in in the states you know where they yeah. they just kind of feel like they're you know they're seeing these people who are in pain and you know they're following their processes that they learned at school and they're seeing people three times a week for you know for weeks and months and they're not really getting better and they're looking for tools that are going to help you know, help them to get their mm-hmm. patients better. You know, I think they're they're just trying to get better results for their patients as well, but it's kind of, you know, they, there's a whole bunch of stuff that they don't even know that they don't know about acupuncture. And, and oh, ac- yeah. I guess that's where, you know, where it comes into play where you've got people who are using a tool and they don't understand what, what it is that they're doing with that tool. Even though they, you know, for a lot of people, they're getting they're getting good results from, you know, relief of pain and so forth.
2: Well, they're looking at the rest of us in this field as being, we're metaphysical, we're woo woo, and we're making all this mystical stuff up. And you know, it's like what I call a very Eurocentric, arrogant, materialistic science point of view. You know, science according to. Medical anthropologists such as Nathan Sivan, every culture has science. It may not be as technologically um, advanced as, say, Western modern culture is in terms of its tools, but certainly it has tools. You know, the Chinese were way ahead of their time with technologies and all sorts of things from gunpowder to shipbuilding to agriculture to production of liquors, et cetera, et cetera, very advanced culture, all the way back to the Han Dynasty and was highly urbanized by the Ming Dynasty. We're not talking, you know, quote-unquote primitives here. We're talking very sophisticated cultures and science. It's just that it's a science based on yin and yang, five-phase principles, and application to viewing the world in a very particular way. So it's the arrogance of the Western thinker who can't see anything beyond the technical aspects that they've been taught. It's what I call, uh, paraphrasing Rudyard Kipling's, the white man's burden, that you know European Anglo culture is the most advanced culture on the planet, therefore everybody else should bow down to it and defer to it. Yeah, we like acupuncture, but you gotta practice it our way. We'll tell you what the what's allowed and what's not, et cetera, et cetera. You know what I'm saying?
0: Sure. So at the risk of being metaphysical and um you know holographic let's do some time travel to talk about time and the importance of time in chinese medicine earlier in the conversation when we were talking about the six stages of cold damage you mentioned there were two types or ways of practicing and one of them had to do with time and synchronicity um, and also being you know the way we move along the timeline or the grid you called it of the pathogenesis of someone and their spirit. Um, Let's talk about time in Chinese medicine.
2: Time is the secret of Chinese medicine. Um, There was a very good editorial in the New York Times a couple of years ago, I'll have to dig it up again, talking about how it was called January is the cruelest month. I was talking about SAD. how does that translate out, S-A-D? Uh, Seasonal you know, affective
0: affect disorder. disorder, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I
2: forgot there for a second. And how our clocks respond to changes in light, the position of the sun in the sky, the length of the day, the circling of the moon, and how we have our own inner sun and moon in cycles. Um, in, In Suwen 3, it says that the yang qi is like the sun of the body and it's centered in the heart, and that that sun has to be strong to warm the body and fire the body. So there are all these complex cycles that occur that are discussed in the Suwen in great detail, and there's various applications of them in other texts. The Shang Han Lin also talks about how certain illnesses, depending on the channel, the six channels will resolve at different types of day, excuse me, different times of day, will occur, recur, go away, come back. There's a periodicity to these, so that's sequential diagnosis. Um, But there's also the simple idea of bringing the human being into harmony with the present condition. That's why we have systems that have horary points, or balancing five phase cycles, seasonal cycles. We have what's called host qi, guest qi. Host qi means normal seasonal qi in the region where you live. So a normal winter, say in Boulder, Colorado, will tend to be a high of 41 degrees, a low of 17 Fahrenheit. You'll have fluctuations where it could get to the 60s or down well below zero, as you've just experienced recently. But those tend to be relatively anomalous. But some years, there'll be unusually warm winters. And we're seeing, of course, more and more unusual warming due to the climate change phenomenon, which also affects everyone's health. And you'll have anomalously cold years. You'll also have the phenomena where the autumn or the summer will last too long and winter begins late. So we say that the guest chi, which is the autumn chi, overrides the host chi. And therefore, you get a long autumn and a shorter winter. But it's also possible that the host chi is so strong that it gets cold much too early, let's say October, and it may stay cold all the way into May or June. So you can have these variances on the seasons which can have cat- catastrophic effects to human health. I've kept journals now with a colleague of mine in Colorado, Don Hayes, for 35 years or more, and what I've concluded through my own study and research is that about a week before there's a relatively major weather change. Weather changes in Southern California, of course, are a lot less dramatic than in Boulder, Colorado, or I assume to some degree in Melbourne, it's also Mediterranean but it has more of a winter I think than uh, San Diego does, is that when there's weather changes which are, I call this Chinese medicine thermodynamics in my upcoming book, where there are changes in wind direction, humidity, air pressure, and climatic air masses that we call high or low pressure, yin or yang air masses, that it will affect the human bio regime and will the body will try to respond to that change and if it can't respond effectively you'll get symptoms of chill and cold, digestive upset, joint pain. In other words human beings are like plants or animals like when a cold winter is coming, animals know to grow thicker coats on them. How do they know that? There are these biological clocks at work that know even before the weather changes, that the body needs to respond by putting a thicker coat of hair on it. Or ants. In very cold, before very cold winters hit, you'll see them very actively storing food earlier than they normally would. You could see this in the cycles of animals, insects, and plants. It's quite amazing. It's a form of intelligence in nature. We think intelligence is just something that's inside the brain. Intelligence is throughout our bodies, throughout our visceral sy- systems, The Chinese attribute intelligence not just to the brain, but to the liver, heart, spleen, kidney, and lung. We see intelligence in plants, how they respond to changes, like how plants open or sunflowers move and follow the sun during the day and turn around to the sun, how they open and close when the sun is out, the petals open. When the sun is down, the petals will close. It's amazing stuff. It's, It's been right under our noses all the time. Well, the truth is the Chinese have looked at this very carefully, and it informs our medicine very much. But that means we also need to look at it and involve ourselves in these natural phenomena and cycles to understand them. We can't just understand it intellectually. We actually have to live with them. So when students of mine want to study the pulse, there's an area of San Diego known as Torrey Pines, which are like these high cliffs on a mesa overlooking the ocean. And from the top, you can watch sets of waves rolling. Depending which way the wind is blowing, depending on the swells or storm systems out at sea or the lack of them, will it depend. you'll see different wavelengths. So there's sets of waves. Every surfer knows about this. A good set, a bad set. Intervals between individual waves, intervals between sets of waves. If the seas are choppy, if they're smooth, if they're swelling or what we call flooding in terms of pulses, or if they're kind of flattened, same phenomenon in the pulse. The pulse can be choppy, it can be flat, it could be flooding, it could be fast, it could be slow. The same breathing of the earth and of the sea, the flow of the tides in and out, high tides and low tides, with the moon, the, the lunar cycles, are working inside of our bodies all the time. It's right there under our noses, but if we're not aware of it, if we don't look at ourselves that way, we're not going to see it. And that's where we also work with time. We synchronize with time to restore our health. The simplest way to work with that, people don't even really know why acupuncture is so helpful in fertility. It's because acupuncture is a great tool for restoring normal ovulation and menstrual cycles. It's an amazing thing. And it's free. It's right under our noses. We live it in every day and we can't see it. It blows my mind. (laughs) It really does. End of rant.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, it's such a deep topic, and you're talking about the waves, and, you know, I'm just thinking about, you know, you're collapsing the wave function of the limiting belief systems around all of this.
1: Mm. (laughs) You know, I was thinking about what you were saying about guest host Chi, and I wonder if... We might have some um some Melbourne based listeners who can shed some insight on this, but we have we have crazy weather here all the time. Um it's it's one of those things that we're we're famous for in Melbourne. The you know, there's a saying, if you don't like the weather then just wait fifteen minutes. Um I've heard that, yes. Yeah. Not like Sydney. No, no. And we have, you know, yesterday, for example, it was like cold and raining in the morning, like maybe it was about 15 degrees and raining. So we're in summer. Um, and then, you know, like it was almost like someone flicked a switch, the rain stopped, the sun came out, and then it was like, you know, almost 30 degrees in the afternoon. And yeah, so. Yeah, you need,
2: uh, it's like San Francisco is sometimes, I think.
1: Like yeah. That. Yeah and so there's a lot of you know people need to have a lot of resilience against changes oh, yeah. in in weather and changes in humidity and so forth because it's you know when and a lot of people suffer with diseases when they come to Melbourne that they've never experienced before in their life right. you know we have a lot of right. problems with like hay fever and allergies and right
2: right um, I've heard about that
1: yeah so I guess it
2: more like Perth, I think, on the West Coast. More. It's a little bit more of a stable climate here. But any relatively subtle change here makes people sick. It's very interesting. So whether it's subtle or more dramatic like where you are. But of course, when the changes happen the same day, Boulder can be like that as well. You can, you can go from a very hot, sunny afternoon, and then you get a thunderstorm it drops 30 degrees, and you get really chilled. It's very similar in that sense. Mm.
0: Yeah, Claire, I, I have actually heard they say the same thing here, so I didn't manage to escape it at all.
1: <laughs> well, you'll be well-versed, like your body is at least
0: accustomed <laughs> to being able to deal with it. I know, I'm cultivating chi from the novelty at this point.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's a new place to be and experience a, a whole new way of I love Boulder. It's to me it's like my almost like my second home. You know, I have kids and grandkids in that area and I love being in Boulder. It has everything I need. You know, the mountains, the water, the vegan restaurants, the yoga studios, the great bookstores, even has a Chinese and Middle Asian tea house. Which I oh, love
1: wow.
2: going to drink tea. So I love being there. Melbourne, mm. no I haven't experienced it. I'm the world's worst traveller. So I don't know <laughs> if I'll get there. And, uh, we'll show you if around can, if
1: you come one day.
2: Thank you. If I can get like those transporters like they have in Star Trek it would help. It's <laughs> out <of> airplanes, torture. <laughs> yeah.
0: We're working on them. So, that, <laughs> it's been great chatting with you, yes. from Picasso to Zhang Zhongjing and even Dostoevsky. got a mention. Um, <laughs> Is there anything else you want to add before we wrap up?
2: Uh, Just to people who are practicing or studying Chinese medicine as students or new practitioners, don't give up on this medicine. There's more than meets the eye. Study, study, study. Find mentors. Look at the source material. Um, Don't think that it's outdated or outmoded because of biases of Western thinking. You have an adventure ahead of you, and we've got to keep this stuff alive because the world really needs it and The argument, if anyone ever asks you, is that we need an environmentally sound ecological medicine to share with the world. That would be my last thoughts on this subject today and I will have a book out hopefully in the fall, hopefully in the fall, called "Return to the Source." Uh, classical Chinese medicine and modern practice from Singing and Dragon Press in London.
0: That's great. You've been so generous with your knowledge and I definitely look forward to getting a copy of your book. Uh, If any of our listeners would like to have any conversation back with this podcast, you can make your comments on our Facebook page, The Heavenly Chi page on Facebook. And um, thank you very much, Zev, for being with us today
2: thank you very much it was a great afternoon live long and prosper everyone
0: <laughs> thank Keep you
2: all right
1: bye, bye for bye-bye. now everyone bye
0: for
2: now <laughs> With skull designs upon my shoes I can't give everything I can't give everything.